For those of you who I don't know or haven't met yet, my name is Paul McDade. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time today uh, talking about that. Uh, if you've been with us any time now, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, anyone, before I get started, anybody need a Bible? If you do, if you forgot yours, you don't have one, raise your hand and a blue shirt will bring you one. If you don't have one, that is our gift to you. Feel free to take it home only if you promise to use it. All right, so last week, if you were with us, Blake covered a big section of chapter 5 in Acts, and there's more really awesome, crazy stuff happening in the church in Acts. People are being healed left and right. Uh, thousands are being saved. You'd say the church was bussing. Uh, last week, the Holy Spirit uh, even broke, some, broke the disciples out of jail. Uh, they didn't go far. They got out of jail and went right back to where they were, preaching, get arrested again, get beat again. It says they rejoiced because of it. And every day in the temple at the end of chapter 5, it says, From house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So things were going pretty great in the church until they weren't. I guess you could say there was a little turbulence. Oh, a oh. <laughs> oh, bunch of nerds. So now we start getting some familiar church stuff happening. Um, folks are starting to complain. So y'all turn with me. Acts chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmesan cheese, and Nicolaus, and a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. So here we are. The word of God continued to increase, but right at the start of this, we've got a problem. And really, we've got a couple of problems. The first problem I'll start with is the complaint. It says, now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As Frank Costanza would say, I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> so the Hellenists were not receiving the same care as the others, it says. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Um, they were not receiving the daily distribution like the others were. That goes back to Acts chapter 4 that we've already covered, where it says they had everything in common, and the proceeds from what they sold were being distributed to any who had need. I think maybe it should have said to most who had need. The native Jews primarily spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Greek. The Hellenists spoke Greek, didn't primarily speak Aramaic. So there was a little bit of a language barrier there. Furthermore, the Hellenists didn't necessarily hang out in the same places that the, the Hebrew Jews did, which primarily the temple, which Blake covered last week. He talked about Solomon's portico where they hung out. The Hellenists didn't really hang around there as much. So you can see that there was this barrier, and they were unintentionally being overlooked. I think a good example for us here would be 
If we had a group of non-English speakers that belonged to our church, but they weren't used to our customs, they didn't understand what we were always saying, you could see how there might be a little bit of unintentional separation with that group. Maybe unable to, to clearly communicate, like I'm clearly able to, unable to say that word, clearly communicate what their needs were. And so they were being overlooked. And so I would say it was a valid complaint, which created problem number two, which was the pastoral priority. Verse two, it says, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the disciples were faced with a dilemma. And so the disciples essentially functioned as the early church pastors. How were they able to fulfill their spiritual responsibilities while also helping with the physical needs of the church? They didn't have the time or the capacity to do both. So how would they solve this problem? Well, verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from you among among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So it was easy. They said, let's find some qualified people to come alongside us and help in these needs. And it didn't take long for us. It doesn't take long for us to see. We're just in the uh, chapter six of Acts that there needs to be some organization to the way the church operates. We start to see how the church really should be formed and governed. This is called ecclesiastical polity or another word for it, church government. So I know what you're all thinking. The students are back from the trip. There's all this cool stuff happening, a lot of excitement. We really need to get together and talk about church government. Um, In our survey that we sent out, uh, Ask the Elders Anything, it was the number one response was, I wish we knew more about church government. Uh, Like a wet blanket on all this fun. I need you people to calm down, okay? All right, I'm going to take a poll here, a show of hands. Uh, how many of you grew up in church? Okay, that's a, that's a pretty good section. All right, among those who just raised their hands, how many grew up Baptist? That's how I grew up. Okay, Methodist? Scattering Presbyterians? Okay, okay. Uh, Pentecostal? Yeah, kind of, yeah, good spread there. Uh, Catholic? All right. Lutheran, I'm getting a little, okay. All right. Anglican, got any of those? Uh, oh, yeah. All right. Yes. Uh, any others I didn't mention? Non-denominational. Non-denominational, yeah. Yeah. D, other, yeah. <laughs> so pretty much all of these had, all of these denominations have different styles and forms of how they're governed. Um, and just for my own sake, how many of you called your pastors pastor? Brother, reverend, bishop, father, any others that I missed? A pastor, ah, I said that. <laughs> uh, we got any like apostle, anything like that? No? All right. That, was, that has nothing to do with this. It was just for my own, my own sake. So there's a lot of different church uh, government structures um, And it may be helpful to understand these nuances to understand why we're structured the way we are here at Refuge Church. So there's really kind of three main types of church. I told you this would be riveting. Three main types of church government. So the first type is what's called the Episcopal type, which there is one dude in charge. Uh, There's a single leader often called a bishop or an archbishop. It's most commonly uh, associated with the Roman Catholic Church, sort of like a pyramid where you've got one guy reports to another guy in charge, reports to another guy, and then at the top, there'd be like the Pope or something like that. 
And even some unaffiliated churches, smaller churches, function this way where they have like one senior pastor in charge. He makes all of the decisions. The second type is called the Presbyterian type where you've got a group of dudes. And so they're usually called elders or overseers. Um, the Presbyterian denomination, you would have like a group of elders at a church and they would report, report up to a higher group of elders, sometimes called a general assembly. Uh, non-denominational churches unaffiliated like we are, we have elders and that's the primary governing body. And then the third type would be congregational where it's all you dudes and dudesses uh, have the authority. That's not uncommon in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, a lot of SBC churches op this, operate this way. And there's also blends of these. So you'll see churches that have elders, but then they do congregational voting, senior pastors. They might do congregational voting. Uh, but for us here, I think you know we are uh, elder-led uh, primarily. So, yeah, just a little FYI for you there to maybe understand some context the way this might happen. And so back to our passage, the disciples in this context were really the first church pastors or elders or overseers. There we go. You're probably wondering what I was talking I actually put that in my, in my notes. And their primary calling was to preach the word, not just preach the word, but also prayer and ministry of the word. They said they would devote themselves to the prayer and ministry of the word. And in order to do that, they needed help. And that's where we get to our passage today. And what they said, please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the, the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so this laying on of hands was like a formalization of their appointing, of their calling. They laid hands on them. They officialized the office. Uh, and these were likely the first church deacons. And why do I say likely? It's because the word deacon isn't actually used in our passage. The word to serve is, the word is actually dikaneo, which means to serve, to help, to render assistance. It's important because that's the same verb that is used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we'll get to in a little bit where it talks about the qualifications of deacons. And if we look at our passage in Acts, I think they're clearly laying out the need for deacons to help serve the church and serve the church elders. So we have elders. Their primary calling is to preach, teach, and pray. And we have deacons who are called to serve and to lead in serving. And we believe that both are essential for a healthy church. The, the elders and the pastors need, uh, they need to teach the word and pray for the church. They act as under shepherds uh, for the people's souls. They're stu we're stewards. We have watch care because Jesus, as we know, is the head of the church. Jesus will take care of your soul. Pastors are given a biblical responsibility for the watch care under the direction laid out in scripture uh, to give watch care for your souls, it says, to shepherd and we'll give an account for how we do this. Hebrews says in uh, chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there's a weightiness to this. It's a high calling. So we as pastors, we need the deacons, just like the church in Acts did, for the, to serve the physical needs of the church body. But it's not just the pastors that need them. The church needs them as well. The deacons are gifted by the Spirit in different ways. If you know how our deacons operate here, you know they are extremely gifted people. A lot of you who serve here have really amazing gifts that the Spirit has given you, and you need to serve the church in this way 
for the goodness of, of the church, not just the pastors. And if the elders tried to cover all of these areas of responsibility, neither job would get done very well, or as well as it could, I should say. So imagine this. Imagine, I like to, to liken it to if you're a surgeon, but the surgeon had to clean the room, clean the surgical tools, prep the patient, handle recovery, feed the patient. They wouldn't be a very effective surgeon, at least not as effective as they could be. They definitely wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do as many surgeries as they would need to. Or if you were like a coach of an NFL team, right, and you had to drive the bus and clean the uniforms and fill the water bottles, take care of the injured players, you probably wouldn't do as good of a job coaching as you should do, or you wouldn't have enough time to do it. And sort of like deacons, a lot of these roles operate out of the spotlight. They don't get a lot of recognition, uh, the same that the coach or the surgeon would. When someone gets out of surgery, they say, that doctor did a really good job fixing whatever. Well, they did a really good job because they had a team of people working with them to help, help them be an effective surgeon. Uh, here, here's a good example of kind of operating in the spotlight, out of the spotlight, I mean. So this morning, I send my slides, I put them in a folder for uh, the tech people to to upload, and uh, Eric Eskew kind of heads that thing up every week, and so he's on vacation, he's at the lake. Well, he realizes I used the wrong stupid font on my computer, so all of my slides didn't look like they did when I put them together, and so he fixes everything, like at seven o'clock this morning. Y'all would have no idea that happened, but it, if it didn't happen, my slides would look worse than they already do, and you would be confused. That, that's, that's the example of how these things tend to happen outside of the spotlight, but it makes the church more effective. It's critical to the health of the organization. So uh, you've heard me talk a lot about deacons. I think it would be appropriate for me right now to recognize our deacons. If you're a deacon here, I know not everyone's here. Or they might be serving. Would you mind just standing up for a second? There might just be like a handful of you here. Y'all can look around and see. So we've got 12 deacons, Scott Cockroft, Eric Eskew, Siri Gaskins, Duskin Gaskins, Larry Lewis, Cindy Pickering, Kevin Pickering, Jeff Reese, Lindsey Reese, Josh Scott, Carla Scott, and Dawson Stockdale. Pretty much everything you see here runs because they either do it or they oversee how it's done or under their supervision. They serve joyfully, church. Um, and without much recognition, I'm sure they really hate that I'm even making them stand up right now. Uh, so will y'all thank our deacons? All right, y'all can sit back down before stuff quits working. Um, they minister really to us, to the community around us, and to you, church. So we are very, very thankful for them. So what, what do you have to do? What, what qualifies you as an elder or a deacon? And so I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this. I want to start with uh, the qualifications for elders. Uh, this in Timothy 1, it's not on the screen, but it, in chapter 3, here's what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, or pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the church, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. So that's quite a list that we have of elder qualifications. First, he must have the aspiration, or what we would say he must be called to the office. And we believe the Spirit calls 
men to the office of eldership. We also believe the Spirit equips the called. He doesn't always call the equipped. He must be above reproach. Another word for that would be blameless. A husband of one wife, most commentators would say that means a one-woman man, faithful to his wife. Some would interpret that it means they can only be married once, so can't be remarried, but we don't interpret it that way. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Able to teach. It doesn't necessarily say able to preach. We have four elders, myself, Paul Dacus, Blake Arnold, and Scott Benjamin, and we share some teaching responsibilities. Scott's our primary teaching pastor. But the ability to preach isn't necessarily an elder qualification, but the ability to teach is. You must have enough knowledge of the scriptures to properly exposit them. Defend the faith. The Great Commission says we are to go and make disciples and teach all that I have commanded. We typically expect our elders to to show leadership in leading a gospel community, for example. That's a great way to show that they have the ability to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I think that's pretty self-explanatory as well. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The SV Study Bible, I like the way it says it. It says the home is the proving ground for Christian character and a preparation field for ministry. So wives and kids don't necessarily have to meet the elder qualification, but they're a reflection of how we lead and serve and minister to our own family. If your family is a wreck, why would we think you should have oversight of the church? We like to say, as we talk through uh, people meeting elder qualification, your wives don't have to be qualified, and they can't qualify you for eldership, but they can disqualify you. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's some wisdom and there's some maturity that just comes with age and with time. And lastly, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil. Basically, have a good reputation. We know how to put on church faces a lot of times and we can fool people, but a reputation outside the church speaks a lot for a person's character. So that's quite a list. A lot of qualifications there. Um, We have a long onboarding process. If you've gone through Discover with us, we talk a little bit about our eldership onboarding process. And so what we like to do is have a long, what we call a long on-ramp to eldership. We take our time through the process. And if someone disqualifies themselves, we have a short off-ramp. That means we're not going to take a lot of time discerning this because it could be detrimental to the church if we keep someone in this position too long if there's something unqualifying that's going on. Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 20, 22 warns, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. It basically says, give it some time. It's good for the church to give it some time. And I think this is also a good time to mention, uh, a lot of y'all know Kyle Chesser. Uh, he's preached here a few times. Kyle's right over there. Kyle is in the eldership process with us right now. Uh, he is in that onboarding process, um, the evaluation process. And it's also a time for you, the church, uh, to give us any feedback for any concerns why you think he shouldn't uh, be that office. And we've only had a few so far, but it's okay. We've... No. no, just kidding. Just kidding there. Uh, no reservations. Uh, but yeah, just for your FYI, Kyle is in that process with us. The Bible is also very clear that this office is reserved for men. And we believe that this is uh, pretty much the only office in the church that is reserved for men. Um, 1 Timothy 2 
places some restrictions around that that you can read more about, uh, making it clear that it's reserved for men. It's also, we believe in a plurality of elders. That means more than one. Uh, there's many mentions of that through all, all throughout Acts. Acts 20 says to appoint elders at every church. It's almost always spoken of in the scripture as a plurality of leaders. And we here at Refuge are a true plurality. We're not a first among equals. There's not one guy that gets to make the ultimate final decision. We unanimously decide on things, trusting that the Spirit will lead us through that. Uh, plurality creates a shared accountability, which means that we help each other stay on track. If somebody starts veering off, we can help each other to stay on, tr- stay on track. How many pastors have you seen fail because of some moral failure publicly? I believe a plurality of elders helps prevent that. It helps keeps us accountable to Scripture and accountable to one another. It also creates a shared responsibility. We know there's a lot of work to be done. Even a church of our size, there's a lot of work to be done, and it would be almost impossible for one pastor to do all of the work. So having a a plurality of elders shares that responsibility. It doesn't mean that pastors are holier than anyone, uh, that we sin less necessarily, um, but it does mean that we are to be the chief repenters. We like to say that a lot amongst our elders, that we should be the first to repent. It doesn't, like I said, we're not without sin, but we should mirror to the church what it's like to repent regularly. Uh, And hopefully we've done that. We've had to do it some publicly. Hope we don't have to do it a lot more, but we will if we need to. And I will say it's, it's really a joy to serve you, church, in this capacity. I know I speak for all of our elders to say it's a joy to serve you this way. All right, moving on to deacons. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 uh, picks up in verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what you see is the qualifications are kind of the same that they are for elders uh, with just a couple of exceptions. The ability to teach being the first. It doesn't mention that in the qualification of elders. And the second is there's some mention of wives, and I will say wives or women. That's because that word in verse 11 can mean both. It's translated both. The ESV translation says wives, but it can also be translated directly as women. And so you may have noticed when we just mentioned our deacons that we have women deacons here at Refuge. That's because we believe that that's referring to to women in that chapter, not wives specifically. There's a couple reasons why, and I'll explain. Um, The word likewise that's used in the beginning of that sentence typically introduces a new group of people, not a relationship to the former group which would be husbands in this case. And also there's no mention of wives in the qualification for elders. And so why would there be a mention of wives as a deacon qualification, but not something for elders? So we believe that this passage is talking about women, which the translation would allow that. There's a passage in Romans, uh, in, in Romans 16 that says, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Century, probably butchered that, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. That word used in that verse is the Greek word for servant, which is also the Greek word for deacon. In the context Paul is using in that verse would fit the context we're talking about for the Roman church, uh, for the church in the 
acts as well that we're just talking about. It sounds very much like a deacon. And so here at Refuge, we use that interpretation as well. If you ever have any questions about that, uh, we're happy to sit down and walk through more of of why we land where we land. Um, But both pastors, elders, and deacons are called to serve. This is not an office. Either one is not an office of recognition. It's not done to bring praise on ourselves. We install elders and deacons based on how they're already serving. It's not a, hey, we think you can do this. We're going to make you an elder or a deacon in hopes that you begin to serve that way. It's the opposite. We see this in you. We see how you're serving and loving the church. You meet those qualifications. Let's make it official. And by the time a lot of people are installed here, we get a, we, it's not uncommon for what someone to say, well, I already thought they were a pastor. I already thought they were a deacon. And that's a good thing. We didn't install deacons here until 2017. We were eight years old, but we had a lot of people serving in that capacity. So when the time came to make it formal, it was just kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, I see that in these people. And our deacons really are amazing. Uh, Pastor Blake told me this week that a lot of you know that we belong to SOMA communities. And so Blake has a real close relationship with them and spends a lot of time with those guys. And our church has a reputation for how well our deacons serve. We're known uh, by our deacons. Uh, partly, and, and we have that reputation that, yeah, you've got a really good team of deacons, and they serve your church really well, uh, and definitely sense that a lot of those churches wish that they had uh, the help that we have from our deacons. So I hope you understand why we're structured the way we are. Uh, we think uh, scripture clearly lays out that the church should be structured this way for the health and flourishing, and we, we try to abide by that. The end of the passage in Acts says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It worked for them, and it it works for us. So what? I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with me, backup preacher? All right, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I'm glad you asked. First thing, and here's how it really applies to you. Pray for your leaders. Pray regularly for your leaders. There's joy. Like I said, there's joy in serving, but there's a heaviness in serving. There's suffering involved. Second Timothy 1 says uh, in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in this suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul was writing that letter to Timothy, and he said, Share in the suffering with me. Called, because you're called to this same office. Pray for us, uh, church, that our identity won't be rooted and isn't rooted in our calling. Most of what we hear tends to be things that could be done better or problems or the messiness in people's lives. And we don't lament that. We we understand that that's part of this. Uh, But if our identity is rooted in our calling, then in times of trouble, it can lead us into despair. And the opposite is true. When things are going well, it can lead us into pride if our identity is rooted in our calling. It is the spirit who sustains the church, not the leaders. And I need you, we need you to hold us accountable to that, that we lead by following the spirit. The second thing for you, church, listen to the spirit, for you to discern that maybe you are being called to something greater. Is the Spirit calling you to, to, to serve in a greater capacity? We've got some really, really amazing volunteers here who have gifts and who have equippings that the Spirit has given you. Pray and listen if the Spirit might be calling you to serve. If so, come talk to us. We would love to talk to you. 
And as Christians, we all have qualifications, right? Qualifications for elders and deacons really aren't that much different than what we're all called to as Christians. That's not to say that you can unqualify yourself as a Christian. We believe that we are saved by the Spirit and we're sustained by the Spirit. We can't lose our salvation. But outside of the ability to teach, those qualifications aren't really different than what you and I are called to as just Christians, as just followers of Jesus. So we aren't exempt from those. God asks, he tells us in Scripture to obey, and it really follows a lot, a lot of those qualifications. And lastly, uh, for those of you who have been Christians for a while, um, do you find yourself getting caught up in the doing? I've heard it called the performance treadmill. Do you find yourself thinking, I need to do more. There's got to be more that I can do. If I could only do more. And sometimes we don't consciously think God will love me more if I do more, but our human nature tends to veer us that way. Maybe you serve here faithfully. Maybe you belong to a gospel community. Maybe you give regularly to the church. These are all really good things, and the church needs you to do these things. But we tend to sometimes base our justification on our Christian effectiveness how much we do for God. So listen to me. You're not just useful. You are loved. You are cherished. You are adopted. Deacons, I'm talking to you especially. I know you work really hard for us. You're not just useful. Because of Jesus and his saving work on the cross, on your behalf, you are loved by the Father with the same love he has for the Son. You're adopted Christian, you're bought with a price. You've been washed clean and covered by the blood of Jesus. And listen, if you don't do one more thing for the church, it doesn't change this fact. Yes, we need you to serve, but your identity and your justification is not rooted in anything you do. It's 100% rooted in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. So where are you placing your identity today? Christians, is it in your Christian effectiveness? For those of you who don't know you, know Jesus, what defines you? What is your identity? Is it your success, your reputation, um, the way you look? We have, a lot of, we have a lot of responsibility and a lot, a lot of jobs to do if the church is to thrive. That is true. But my invitation to you today, church, whether you're a deacon, whether you're just here as a guest, whether you're an unbeliever, is to rest in the fact that you are a a son and a daughter of the living God. And if you're not, you can be. Not by serving the church, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus today. The same God that when Jesus was baptized, when the Spirit descended and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, those are the same words he speaks over you today because of Christ Jesus. He is well pleased in you. Not because of your Christian effectiveness, not because of how hard you serve, but because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We work from that truth, church, not for it. Let me pray for us.